LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Mark Korsky, who joins us to discuss his film, Engines of Domination, Political Power and the Human Emergency. Is political power, armed central authority with states and war, really necessary for human society? Or is it a tool that ruling elites use to live at the expense of everyone else? Engines of Domination offers a theory of political power as a tool an engine that converts human energy into power and privilege for the rulers. Invented in the Bronze Age and ruthlessly refined for 6,000 years, today this engine threatens to destroy our world in a human emergency of converging political and economic crises, resource depletion and environmental destruction. Applying his theory of political power to Western history, Korsky makes a passionate argument that there is only one way to respond to this emergency. Armed central authority must be abolished, giving way to a world of peaceful, voluntary communities. 6,000 years of violence and chaos, of abusive power and plundered privilege, is more than long enough. It's time for something better. Hello and welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg. It's great to talk to you again. I really look forward to it. Mark, uh, you and I spoke together uh, about four years ago, a little over four years ago, actually, talking about a book that you published at that time, or had published at that time, Engines of Domination, Political Power Mm -hmm. and the Human Emergency, that was later turned into a film. Uh, There's an updated version of that, which we're going to be talking about. But before we dive into all that, just for people who don't know, tell the listeners a little bit just about who you are and what you've done. Well, professionally, uh, my, my background is in mathematics and physics. I taught those subjects 35 years. Now I'm retired. But since my teens, I've been almost obsessed with thinking about political power and the problems of our world. And over the decades, I gradually pieced together an original way of thinking about that issue, connecting political power to the complex of problems I call the human emergency, most urgently uh, the threat of nuclear war and the habitats being destroyed. I finally got that formulated in the book, in 2008 and got it published just a few months, I think, before we spoke. It's a it's an original and fairly complex theory of political power as a tool rather than a natural feature of human communities. I regard it as an artifact that resulted when some factions in communities discovered how to domesticate the communities they were part of. Uh, an innovation that created new institutions that served the interests of those factions at the expense of the community. And in particular, I call it an engine uh, on the analogy to a physical engine, a device that converts energy into useful work. The energy is the human community's energy, and the useful work is getting the community to act in ways 
that serve the authority and privilege of the rulers. That's the smallest nutshell I can pack the content of a, a nearly 300-page book into. Uh, I published it myself, didn't feel I could take the time to wait and try to find a conventional publisher. Okay, so that explained, uh, by the way, on the interview page for this show, people can find a link back to our original talk together. But um, as you say, the book got turned into a documentary in 2014. We're talking here today because you've just released a new version. So what prompted that? I mean, obviously the message is as relevant as ever, but what prompted you to go back just to this particular information in this particular format? Well, in uh, in early 2014, I heard from a filmmaker named Justin Jezuski in Chicago who happened to find my book on Amazon. It was one of those suggested title things. He bought the book and thought very highly of it and proposed making a documentary. And I had no idea how you could possibly make a documentary film about a 300-page treatise on a theory of political power. But uh, we ended up deciding to base the film on a talk I'd given here in Taos shortly after I published the book called Human Nature and the Human Emergency. And he launched into the project and began producing stuff that I thought was amazing. I was completely unfamiliar with with the modern film YouTube scene online and so forth. So it seemed very promising, and we worked extremely hard putting this thing together for nine months and released it in November of that year, and it turned out to be a big success, a success I never dreamed of. The uh, the site Films for Action awarded it Best, Docu- or Best Activist Film of 2014, and as of today, it's received something like uh, close to 78,000 views, counting all the different uploads. So anyway, we finished it in late 2014, and Justin had already decided to, to start work on a new film about the Provo anarchist movement that was in Amsterdam from 1965 to 1967. I'd never heard of that either. And to make a long story short, we ended up deciding to collaborate on that film too. It had been uh, such a wonderful experience working together on, on engines. So that was how we spent basically the next two years to do this documentary about this marvelous event that happened in Amsterdam but isn't well known outside Europe. Then we reached a kind of a kind of natural pausing point late year before last, and the U.S. elections had just happened, Trump had assumed power, and the new fascist movements that greatly alarmed me were increasing their strength in, in Europe and elsewhere. I felt the time was right to try to get this message out again. Further, uh, we'd thought of ways the, the original film could have been improved almost from before we finished it. So we decided to put Provo aside and undertake a remake of Engines. At first we thought it might be a fairly simple task, but as we dived in, we really found the film had a potential neither of us had ever glimpsed. So we completely reworked it. We There's a, a Socratic dialogue at the beginning that we engaged professional actors here in Taos to perform. I rewrote the script for clarity and some changes of emphasis and uh, put in a few small points that weren't in the original, although it's essentially the same. And, and Justin adopted a completely different style instead of the, the rather experimental kind of a bombardment of, of fascinating images of the original. Now it's more like a conventional documentary 
in that the, the footage more closely follows the, the narrative and illustrates it. And also, it's more serious. We omitted a comic song and a kind of party scene ending in favor of a more wistful and uh, inspiring one. So no telling what will come of the new film, but yeah, it's more timely than ever, and we hope this embodies it in, a, in, in an artistic form that will have a bigger impact if it can only get out to the right people. Well, you've outlined already the basic uh, narrative um, of both the book and subsequently the film, um, and it's all about portraying where we are now in the world as very different uh, outcome of a very different sort of, uh, very different set of causes than most people imagine. And in an early part of the film, there's, I'm paraphrasing now perhaps, uh, there's a quote, when we see a creature acting its habitat, we see its nature. And people today are very quick to condemn, the, you know, our own species and sort of the havoc that we've wreaked on the planet. And they talk about human nature and its destructive dimensions and say, you know, this is what we are, and, you know, it's inevitable, you know, we're all about conflict, and we don't seem to be able to live in harmony uh, with the environment, even though, of course, uh, there's a long human history of us doing that uh, quite a long time ago, remnants of which we see in indigenous, indigenous populations. But I think what you're saying is that uh, human nature isn't actually, what we're seeing around us now isn't the result of human nature per se, it's a completely different set of, um, as I say, motivations, causes, and effects yeah, well, the judgment on human nature is essential. You know, people are, are speaking of us living in the Anthropocene epoch when human action is having a decisive effect on, on the entire planet, as if it were our species that's doing it. And it certainly is being done by members of our species, and certainly if our species weren't here, this would not be happening. But to me, that's like saying it is our species that writes poetry, or it is our species that beats children. Certainly members of our species do those things and, and commit war. My view is that it's not human nature to be violent and destructive, that we're actually an ingenious and cooperative species who survived for a quarter of a million years in relative peace and harmony with the habitat and without anything like the modern institutions of armed central authority, privileged elites, states, war, slavery, and so forth. What I, what I actually, in more detail, I think one of our traits, the trait for harnessing external sources of energy and domesticating plants and animals, enabled small factions of people to domesticate their fellows. And although that was possible for human nature, obviously after a quarter of a million years of no such thing happening, it was an innovation, not a natural development, as the film says, like a young man's face sprouting a beard. I believe this innovation took place about 6,000 years ago, starting in Mesopotamia. And it undoubtedly took a long time to come into a form that was really effective. But it seems understandable that since human beings basically try everything, and someone eventually is going to do anything, that some people would learn how to live at the expense of their fellow human beings. Then the question is, once you have that intention, whether it's conscious or not, even if you think you're doing good, but you're actually sneakily trying just to get a little more for yourself than the people around you, whatever, once that intention exists, what means are necessary to carry it out? You can only make a tool in certain ways, given its purpose. You can't make a, an axe with a wooden blade or a rubber handle. 
So if you want to domesticate communities, what means are necessary? And my theory spells out a, a very simple and rather colorful, but I think heuristically valuable set of uh, seven specific different kinds of institutions that you need to set up to really make an effective tool for making tools of human beings. And then the final question is, once that tool exists and is in operation, what are the inevitable consequences of it being used? And I think one can draw out that although one originally just intends to live at the expense of one's community, one is eventually going to have to engage in things like warfare and conquest. One is going to have to uh, develop more effective weapons, more effective means of destruction because one's involved in war and conquest. Uh, one is going to end up causing greater and greater destruction to the habitat as you have to uh, acquire larger and larger amounts of resources to feed that process. And eventually you wind up with the situation very much like we find ourselves in today, where the institutions of power come to endanger the entire planet. Some people might say, well, if you had, going back into the mists of time, if you had some human beings kind of coming to this intuition or trying this innovation, living at, at the expense of the, the rest of the tribe, that not that a dimension of human nature? And if it isn't, then why didn't human nature prevent that that small faction from coming to have the upper hand? But is it a case of that it just so happened that these, uh, you know, that certain numbers of human beings or, or small groups of them acting unnaturally, uh, just in a particular, of all the different innovations that were tried in different behaviors that are out there, this set of behaviors of, as you mentioned, you know, about agriculture and, and energy, allowing that control, it just happened to run away with itself, get the upper hand, and it kind of snowballed from there, and it became harder and harder for individual human beings or, you know, to live outside of that or to be completely free of that and to not come under its yoke. I think, I think it's very much like your second scenario there, Greg. First, this was unprecedented. I mean, there may have been, there undoubtedly were many communities where some people kind of got an advantage or were exerting some power over others, but there is really not much evidence that that was at all the typical case in communities bef before the Bronze Age. Uh, it was unprecedented, and if it were to be effective, I don't think it could have had a sudden onslaught. I think it may have began through, uh, through, say, priest and priestess cults taking some small advantage over their communities under the pretext of being guardians of the of the incredible treasure that was stored in the granaries of those communities and ministering to to giving thanks to the goddess that provided that bounty. And out of small beginnings by small steps, it's possible that a considerably powerful system of thought control could have existed before there was armed authority. There could have been uh, religious mind authority. On that basis, then, once you bring force into the question, once you bring military force into the question, then it's not so easy to say no. Uh, once you have people with... You know, the first anti-personnel weapons didn't exist until the Bronze Age. The mace was the first weapon specifically designed for killing people, to smash their skulls. Once you have a system of thought control coupled with organized military force confronting you with the choice of complying or going into battle, which is not your con 
your traditional way of living in your previous quarter of a million year history, it seems to me then the balance of power topples in favor of the conquerors. And you have a kind of takeover effect where this, this phenomenon spreads. Once you have an aggressive, armed, authoritarian community in one place, is it going to stay put or is it going to uh, reach out to exploit neighboring communities and maybe attack them or conquer them? And then how do those communities act? Do they line up with flowers in their hands and say, no, please don't conquer us? No, they have to arm themselves. And they have to organize around some kind of command structure of their own that resembles the regime that's aggressing against them. So you have a kind of domino effect where once this process really gets dug in in one place, the chances against being overcome there and squashed are much smaller than the chance of it spreading and propagating that same form of society around. Yes, yeah, so it's really that those force multipliers of you know, agriculture and harnessing energy that allowed this to be different from all of the rest of human history. And I think the statistic is something like hierarchical society that you're describing, that only 3% of human history has actually been like that. All of the other more peaceful, cooperative uh, society with the other sort of 97% of human history. And of course, it occurs to me that then, and we see this all around us now, but in the early centuries of this happening, that people who do lever some advantage for themselves and set themselves above other above others whether it was in the early days a priest class or whether later on it was based on material means they then got it got to a point where they needed intermediaries uh, between them because it's all very well for one person for example to dominate a tribe of 20 30 50 people but if it's like 300, 400, 500, one, one person it becomes harder and harder. So you might have one person at the top and then an in, sort of middle management of other individuals and then you begin a hierarchy. So I suppose that in the early stages of this, other people who got kind of coerced into being part of this domination because of, they got paid off. It was like, well, if you support this, you know, priest class or whatever it happens to be, king class or warrior class or anybody who's setting themselves above others, if you, you know, play second fiddle, then you'll benefit from this as well. Not as much as the person at the top, but you'll be better than those below you. And if you then start to extrapolate that out, very quickly you can see how things have become very stratified and no longer at all like the, the relatively egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies. Oh, exactly. I actually think the hierarchy begins when you first have people taking any kind of command. An individual can't take command over dominating a community of any size. It has to be an organized group. There may be a predominant leader. There may even be some kind of divinized, god-king-like figure that represents the group. But I think from the beginning, we had ruling elites. We had ruling segments of the society. Then they cultivate those second fiddle people that you mentioned to create a class structure that supports their power and carries out their interests in the community. And then that further divides the community because you have the relatively privileged upper strata versus the, all the lower strata that make that possible. And you can cultivate conflicts between the low strata and the middle and upper strata that prevents all of them from uniting against the ruling elite. So I see the class structure not just as a necessary consequence of how you manage a complicated community, but as a tool for stabilizing your control over the community. 
And I think the hierarchy has to originate in the original ruling groups, where you, you have to have an internal discipline and an, an internal way of propagating orders and keeping the, your small ranks in order. You mentioned earlier kind of seven different aspects of this. So why don't you walk through those and just from your perspective, say a little bit about what you mean by them, how they may have uh, had their beginnings, their origins. And I think as you do that, it'll become very clear to people how relevant these are to where we are now. The first one being land holding by force. And that's what some people refer to as the tragedy of the commons, I think. Oh, that was the huge step. I think you can't control a community. In the movie, and in, not in my book, but in the film, I, I take an approach where I say, imagine we want to domesticate a community. What do we need to do? How do we need to accomplish that purpose? And since I've described political power as a tool, as an engine, I call these different aspects of how you need to control the community the components of the engine, like a, the blade and handle of an axe. So the first thing you need is a community. You, you, you know, you can't just get a community to come uh, come to you and say, domesticate us, you need to capture the community somehow. And the way to do that is to take its land by force. Land had never, to my knowledge, been on any memorable scale held by force before the first Bronze Age kingdoms. And by that I mean that the small ruling faction and their armed associates occupy an area of land and set the rules of how people are going to live there. Then that captures the community, because the community needs the land for life support. And they're bound to it through all their traditions and kinships. You know, it isn't just like moving from Houston to L.A. Uh, the valley that your people have been in from time immemorial is your world. So if that has been captured, you're captured. And then the, the rulers can make the subjects lives depend upon obeying by holding their life support hostage if they don't obey. Instead of having land held in common, cultivated for the common good, now we have land held under the jurisdiction of some ruling authorities. So that's the fundamental component and remains so today. There, I don't believe there's a square inch of land on the planet that isn't one way or another under the jurisdiction of some political power now. Even the international ones simply put it under the jurisdiction of, of many national powers. That's the fundamental and remains the fundamental today. Then in order to do that, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you have to be highly organized. You need some way of carrying out complex actions effectively and reliably, and that means you need some way of transmitting orders from superiors to subordinates. I call that a command structure. So the hierarchy that develops begins with the need for an internal command structure in the ruling faction of a community. Uh, in order to stabilize that, at some point a system of written law will be helpful. If, if you have the commands and punishments specified in a reproducible form that can be transported around and, uh, and so forth, that helps too. So you get something like an internal hierarchy and legislation of some kind lawmaking as a necessary consequence of needing to hold the land by force. Then to hold the land by force and to maintain your command structure, you need weapons. It isn't enough to just wave your fist around. Uh, you need superior force over the people that you're trying to dominate. You also need a lot of other things because you aren't busy out in the fields or the mines or wherever 
uh, getting the raw materials for a human community, you're busy dominating it. So you need you need places to live. You need people to make your clothing. You need vehicles. You need uh, paths or roads to transport things. You need a lot of institutions that produce all the things you need, which are in common with the community, food, life support, clothing. But above all, you need your weapons, and you need your other means of enforcing power, uh, secure quarters, confinement for prisoners, things like that. And since weapons are tools that destroy, I call all of the organizations that the rulers need to use to provide their material needs the destruction industry. Today, I mean, that's obviously a pun on the construction industry. And today, when we look at what's happening to the planet, it's, it's some people think industry itself is the destruction industry. But that's the third component. So once you have those three components, uh, you need people to do the stuff in the destruction industry. You need labor on demand. You need to make sure that you've got all those things that those institutions produce. So you need forced labor of some kind. You need to be able to make people do what you want them to do for you, whether they want to or not. And historically, that goes back to the beginning of domination. Uh, historically, it's included slavery. After the Roman Empire, slavery uh, system broke down as the empire began to withdraw and collapse, serfdom. Uh, in more modern times, we have draft labor, where you simply basically conscript people into work, prison labor, military conscription. And I regard wage labor for life support as forced labor because you're doing it under the threat of starvation. Uh, also, taxes can be regarded that way. If you're paying 20% in taxes, one can uh, say that 20% of your time is work being done for nothing. And if you didn't do that work, you'd lose your job. So you have to have the forced labor. Those components make a fundamental engine of domination, a simple one. But it takes a lot of force to maintain such a system. You can run the engine a lot better with three further components. Uh, the next is the class structure, where you reward different sectors of the community with greater or lesser benefits and advantages depending on how useful they are to you and how loyal they are to you. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that divides the community so internal class conflicts can prevent a unified conflict, a unified uprising against you. Uh, that stabilizes your system by dividing the community. You can also stabilize the system by unifying it in your favor with some system of thought and thought control, uh, with with by propagating some idea like that the rulers are superior beings, god kings, or at least authorized to act by the gods, or that they represent the highest moral principles, democracy, freedom, peace, prosperity, and that therefore the people are lucky to be part of a, of a system that's under such rulers, and that they should be loyal to it, and they should devote their energy to uh, to whatever the system demands of them. So that's the next last component. The final one, I colorfully call human sacrifice. Because in order to make your threat of force real to the community, you have to use force at times, even deadly force. Uh, the film illustrates this with Kent State, which I think is probably one of the best known modern examples, Tiananmen Square also. There are many. But if you don't really crack down at times, 
the subjects are going to be able to call your bluff. But that's not all. You have to you have to not only inflict that force, but in order to keep the loyal subjects loyal and to sell this to your thought control system, you have to justify it. So you have to have some kind of doctrine that killing is necessary for the good of the system, that killing is good when the rulers are authorized the killing, that killing can be a noble duty, and even dying, like in war, can be a noble sacrifice to the good of the system, that some people must die for the good of others when the authorities say so, and that's why I call it human sacrifice. That can include things like uh, ritual murders, capital punishment, war, uh, even allowing that it's okay if if industrial contamination kills such and such a percent of the population, provided it's no more than that. Some people are certainly going to die. And to say that it's all right because it serves the greater good is human sacrifice. So that's my colorful and I think probably oversimplified, but I think very, uh, I think it's thought-provoking and not far from the truth way of describing the different aspects of domination. Yeah, one thing that is made clear from what you just said is that all of this really is done under threat of death really uh, for the individual uh, within the system and for some people you know especially when you've described some structures there that have grown up throughout long periods of history and even you've colorfully described a few recent examples of what you like to call human sacrifice most people don't feel particularly threatened by state-sanctioned death where they are now listening to this but Mm -hmm. actually it can be remarkable how quickly a situation, shall we say, can escalate into something like the threat of death or actual death for an individual if they come up against the system. The, the number of steps to go from, like, we have a problem through to you're dead can be not that many, and it can all happen very quickly. For example, you talked about tax, and uh, obviously there's a lot of people resent the idea of paying tax to go, you know, relatively unaccountable government, but without talking about the ins and outs of all that, Let's just say you've got a problem with paying your taxes to the government. Lots of people in the U.S. feel like that. And you say, oh, I'm going to withhold them to protest. Okay, so you get to a certain point where you get into correspondence with the uh, IRS, whatever it is in the U.S., the Inland Revenue here, and they're saying, you owe us tax. It's overdue. You must pay it by the following date. You don't do it. I'm withholding it as a protest. You may communicate with them, correspond with them and say, I'm, I'm doing it for this reason. I'm not paying you for this reason. And they say, that's not satisfactory. You need to pay it by this time. Otherwise, we'll take you to court. And that process goes on and on. And before you know it, it's kind of like you, you've been uh, summoned to go attend court uh, because you haven't paid your taxes. You didn't turn up. They say, OK, well, now that we're going to add this extra uh, penalty payments on there because you didn't turn up and then it's like well you haven't paid any of this okay so we're going to send some guys around some bailiffs they're going to come and take your possessions to the value of the tax you owe because you haven't paid and you think i'm resisting that i'm not going to open the door to these guys you see where i'm going with this yeah it doesn't take very long before it's like well no these guys are coming to take your stuff to the value of this that you owe um otherwise uh, you'll be prosecuted and you'll go to prison and you resist all of this you don't open your property to them uh, you know, you change the locks, you're in there. Eventually, at some point, uh, and this doesn't take long at all, but okay, we're coming in the bailiffs have the right to break the locks and come in and they'll have police officers with them just in case there's any trouble. Your last resort here to resist this, you know, forget who's right or wrong on either side, but if this is, if this is what you believe as an individual, you may say, no, you're not taking my stuff. I told you from the start, I don't agree with this. And it's like, we are taking it. 
what you defend yourself, however you do it. If you try and defend yourself physically against them, then that can result in you being shot in the US, probably shot by the police. And that's it over. So, and that doesn't take that long. It wouldn't take very many months to go from an initial dispute to like a summary execution. Yeah, there has to be a steel fist inside the glove. But, uh, and, and that's a good example of how somebody who's very far from conflict with the authorities could, could come into mortal danger. But look at demonstrations. Look at how the police are militarizing all over the world. Uh, in the United States, conspicuously, you know, with uh, assault vehicles and armor and uh, all kinds of things up to Raytheon's little, uh, what's it called? I forget the, the, their euphemism for it, but it's a pain ray. It's a, it's a microwave uh, transmitter that uh, makes the skin agonizingly hot for use in riot controls. You can be in mortal danger if you're in a demonstration. And police killings in the United States are escalating. Uh, that fist is out of the glove here entirely. It's clear that the that the ruling elites understand that they may face a rebellion soon, and this militarization and uh, of police and contingency plans for things. Well, they've been training the military to do uh, operations in cities for a long time now. The the threat of actually bringing military force in addition to the police into the cities. It's, it's still a little bit beyond the pale of what most people are aware of, but it's right there, and it's coming increasingly into sight. And in terms of where we are now and, and some of the huge problems that we're facing, for example, on one hand, there's very practical, real-world problems. You know, One of the ones that we hear about almost every day is um, climate change, and you can have whatever thoughts you like about what's causing that. The fact remains that it is happening and we know we're seeing some problems as a result. Those look set to escalate. Uh, we've got problems with resource depletion, all sorts of things that we you know that our global societies depend on are being run down. Some of them renewable, some of them not, but either way being used beyond their capacity increasingly. And also we have the, the abstract economic systems that we run that are detached from the very resources that we have. How would you view these in terms of your scenario? Because you could say that these problems, climate change, resource depletion, artificial kind of fantasy land detached money system are all artifacts of this huge command and domination system that would be unlikely to have arisen given, you know, a different path, you know, if humanity had taken a different path. For example, when we see the remnants of the earlier societies that you spoke about earlier, say, for example, some indigenous societies, they don't drive their local resources they depend upon to breaking point. They don't have arcane kind of Baroque, you know, um, financial systems that are detached from the resources on the ground. But what they rely on, what they depend on, and what they protect is what they actually have in the real world. You know, whether it's fish in the river, crops on the land, apples in the trees, uh, whatever they might use for energy, wood. It's all very much based on what is real and and also sustainably managed. Well, yes, and, and if those archaic societies actually did over-exploit their habitats, they perished or disbanded, and the damage was limited uh, because the outreach of the community wasn't that great and the community that was causing the damage didn't survive the damage it caused. Today we have an entirely different system. One one remark, Greg, I do think that 
the domination that the world is suffering today was probably inevitable. I don't think it could have been otherwise. I mean, conceivably, once people started trying to domesticate one another, uh, there could have been some way to stop it. I can't really imagine what that would have been. But I think it's kind of like inevitably a child stumbles and falls when they're learning to walk. This capability of human nature to domesticate other creatures was going to get turned upon other human beings. And once it was, given how ingenious we are and how persistent we are, I think it was pretty much bound to succeed. So now the question is, can this inevitable digression from our natural way of living into a way of living that does violence to our nature in the world, can it be terminated before it wipes us out, like the earlier archaic communities that overstepped their limits were wiped out by the damage they caused? Now, to me, that's an open question. At times I feel pretty hopeless about it, but that's just a feeling. The future doesn't exist. It's a, it's an art, it's an idea of ours. The, it's still an open question whether we can turn this thing around or throttle it back enough to reduce the damage significantly. One, one of the hopes I have about my film, Greg, I, I don't see myself as any kind of great philosopher who's discovered an immortal truth that everybody should know. But I do believe I've come up with a way of thinking about our problems and connecting with broader issues of political power and human nature that can really be valuable to provoking people to think on their own. I think the success of the first film proves that. People haven't heard of ideas like these before, and they connect things that people may not have previously connected, and they raise questions that people may not have previously asked. I think there's some hope that people may come to a better grasp that the problems run deeper than, than whether May or Corbyn is in power, or whether we have capitalism or socialist states, or you know whether we can use more renewable energy or stop eating meat, or all of these countless little issues that I think fail to address the central problem, which is that these, these institutions of central authority serving privileged elites are necessary for this much damage and are causing the damage for their own benefit at the expense of everybody else. To, to open up people's minds to a broader view of the picture and maybe a wider range of possible solutions. Do you see what I mean? Yes, very much, Mark. And I'm really glad that you took the conversation in that direction because one of the thoughts I had originally you know, reading your book, were, I, I reflected on it in the context of other thinkers that I read and um, you know, evolutionary thinkers, futurists, and, and um uh, you know, and some techno-optimists, it's, it must be said, but the feeling was that we must evolve constantly and that stasis is kind of unsustainable and that any return to quote-unquote societies of the past was impossible, that for better or worse we had to keep moving. And I, I that kind of felt right to me, but I understood also that it depends on what direction you're moving in. So I, I don't think we can just stop and go back. I don't think that's our destiny. But you talk about shutting the engines down. yes. Uh, but also we, we are an evolving species and we're learning all the time. So no one's, there are people out there absolutely who are the, you know, back to hunter gatherer societies and massive reduction in population. Basically go back to something. It just stays the same forever as human societies did for a very long time. That's our only future. I think we're looking at some kind of hybrid future. We you know we have learned a lot in the, millennia that have got us to the point we are now i don't think we're going to throw all that out for example i don't think we're going to just abandon 
technology. I know that word that covers, you know, I mean, everything. Te- I think as you point out in the film, technology has been around since the first time, you know, any kind of tool was used or any type of, any type of method for altering the environment or controlling it or harnessing it. So that's not going away. But I think we do have the possibility, and like you, I have mixed feelings about it sometimes, depending on what day it is, that we going forward is the only way to go but it's just a question of what the next step is what we keep from what we learned and what we get rid of what we stop and what we start and what we finesse and what we downgrade is all these questions ahead of us absolutely Uh, we have to understand the problem we're trying to solve correctly the problem of that any community in nature fundamentally has to solve is the life support of its members that's why the communities form. Even if it's a primitive, in quotes, community like a lichen that's, that's uh, algae and fungi living in symbiosis, life support is the fundamental issue. All of the questions about different, different systems, political systems and so forth, take for granted that the land is going to be held in common by force, and that's how the life support is going to be provided. If we could really open that question, to other ways of communities providing their life support and sustaining their well-being if we were free to devote 1% of the energy to looking at that problem and trying to find new solutions, 1% of the energy that goes into designing advertisements, designing consumer products, creating fraudulent business campaigns, heavens, even programming robocall programs, uh, to if we 1% of that energy we're consistently devoted to solving the problem of human well-being, I think it could come up with things that would make utopia sound more like a dubious, more than a dubious idea. I think there's great potential that, and that we, as things have advanced technologically and scientifically over the centuries, we have more at our disposal than we ever had to solve that problem before. The experimentation that led to the Neolithic communities before domination, was terminated by the advent of domination. There have been almost no free experiments, other than a very small scale, about how to organize human communities for their members' well-being since that time, 6,000 years ago. If we could open up the field to that process resuming with the resources we have today, I really think the future might look different than anything anyone can imagine, and, and hopefully something pretty different than people scrounging through the ruins for their subsistence. Have you ever looked at the resource-based economy model uh, that um, embodied, for example, by the Zeitgeist movement, the idea being that it's a sort of technocracy, that uh, things, you know, everything gets automated and decisions are made by those best placed to make them. It sounds very utopian, indeed, I think it is, but it's a way of basing the uh, human economy, as I mentioned earlier, on what we actually have and things being egalitarian. My problem with with it is is it is utopian in nature and it depends on action in concert across the globe, basically. Everybody deciding the path we're on is completely unsustainable, so we need to go in this direction, so we will turn. And the issue we face, whether you're an advocate of that sort of model or not, but the, one of the issues that we, we face in thinking about how to do things differently is taking steps that cause certain people or parties to lose out. This will be inevitable. How you think about losing out is all relative, but some people will feel, no, you're asking me to basically make a sacrifice in my status or wealth, whatever it happens to be, because we're moving in this different direction that's going to be more sustainable and better for everybody. And great many people and groups who want to protect the positions that they have, they're going to say, why should we change? Why should we alter what we've got? Why should we give up anything? And in fact, no, we're going to defend what we've got 
by force of necessary. And I think that's very much where we are now in many ways. You know, there's pressure points in the system. Cracks are showing and the response hasn't been, okay, this looks bad. Let's take a step back and see what we can do. It's been actually, no, more grabbing, you know, more protection, more armed communities and, uh, as you mentioned, militarized police and uh, people, um, you know, sort of seeing enemies everywhere. Yeah, I think I think these issues... I'm, no, I'm not familiar with any details of the resource-based economy. I've, I've seen it. I'm, I'm woefully unfamiliar with almost anything but my own ideas because I'm so <laughs> busy, you know, developing them and, and writing them down. Uh, I know there's a lot of promising ideas, but I think that's a little bit too far down the road to really look seriously. We have to prevent, if it's humanly possible, we have to prevent nuclear war and we have to do everything we can to halt what we can of the processes that are destroying the habitat. These are critical emergencies. I have no predictions about about the climate, but I do think it's possible that we'll go spiraling into absolutely into terminal conditions very soon. All these other questions are secondary to that. It's pointless talking about how a world 50 years from now might function unless we do everything we can to make sure there's a habitable world 50 years from now. A major nuclear war or climate change continuing along its present course, no hope 50 years from now, as far as I can tell. I'm certainly not a climate expert, and you know, I know quite a bit of physics, but my heavens, this the global warming was predicted. Uh, I read in 1976, NASA published a, a study on possible heavy lift vehicles that could basically be space freighters that could launch you know, enormously heavy payloads into orbit, and a major part of that book was a detailed analysis of how the emissions from the rockets would put greenhouse gases into the air and a, a sober warning that under present greenhouse emissions projected for the next 30 or 40 years, global temperatures would increase by something like 2 Celsius. Well, that's nearly 40 years ago. Uh, there's no question that this process has to be throttled back and hopefully halted or the game's off, Greg. Yeah, well, one big problem that I see at the minute is that a lot of people who are looking at some of the big global problems we face are suggesting technological uh, innovations will take care of this. But as you mentioned about, you know, the emissions from those rockets, that the, the cost in itself of that is absolutely huge. And, you know, we have a tendency to pile technolo- technological solutions upon technolo- technological solutions now. And it, then you have unintended consequences and more technological solutions are supposed to be the answer. And there's always the question of, like, the, again, the origination and control of this technology. You know, who designs it and who controls it and how it's implemented. Uh, well, there may be some hope in, in things like, you know, carbon recapture. I don't particularly want to see big space mirrors up orbiting in the sky reflecting the sunlight. The obvious thing is to throttle the emissions, and uh, that that's not going to happen without substantial popular force. You know, and when it comes to that, people are not aware of the danger. And I think this brings me to a point I hoped I'd, I'd be able to make. To me, the critical weakness of, of modern domination is that it relies very largely on thought control. Yes, there's always the threat of deadly force, but far more people are deluded into compliance by this incredible thought control system we all live under, from the media to education to even products that in some ways can control our thoughts. I think the most important, if if people say what's the most important thing to do, 
I say first organize. Don't be isolated. If it's a community garden, if it's a, a community watch project, anything, get together with people around you and organize because the isolated individual is powerless and organizations can merge with other organizations into coalitions of action. Individuals can't. It's, it's too big a leap. So organize. But above all, try to challenge thought control. It's the linchpin. If the thought control system fractured, if people suffered a massive disillusionment with the major media and the major avenues of indoctrination, then the truth might break through a lot faster and people might be a lot more motivated to do what's necessary to, to really change things. Uh, thought control has reached in heights I couldn't have dreamed of when I wrote my book. Uh, I wasn't very familiar with the Internet at the time, hardly at all. But now we have things like, uh, just to mention one, one issue, there are all of these various hoax theories going around. Uh, I even had one person tell me that nuclear weapons are a hoax. Uh, you know, the, the, the earth is flat, whatever. And you, this has an insidious effect that I, I realized a few months ago. Good people of goodwill and good conscience read these ideas, and they aren't ready, like I am, just to reject them out of hand based on their, their physical intuition. They say, well, I have to give it a hearing. This just might be true. And these theories play to the sense that one has been deceived by those in power, that one has been led in, into, uh, into some false beliefs to manipulate you. So uh, let's give them a hearing. And people wind up being unable to decide what's true. They end up feeling, well, you know, maybe the Earth is flat. Maybe I should go up in a rocket and look for myself. Maybe nuclear weapons are a hoax. Look, here's another article about that. And it, they, they end up feeling they're powerless to know the truth. And they do this out of goodwill. They do it because they aren't willing to make judgments on really insufficient evidence. And once you have people believing they can't know what's true, the battle's over. Thought control is won in a way it never could have dreamed before, dreamed of winning before when the whole battle was to make you believe that this or that is true. Once it neutralizes you completely. Oh, absolutely. There's, lo there's many, many people who spend a lot of time trying to discern truth or otherwise on issues they just don't need to worry about that just don't directly concern them. You know, well, I don't know, UFOs or Bigfoot or whatever, or even the issue of like nuclear weapons being a hoax. You know, that may be the case, um, I've never had a nuclear weapon go off in front of me. What I've learned second and third hand throughout my life is that, you know, they're real things and they've been used, but it's not a distraction per se to, to ask a question like that, but you can get completely lost, just, you know, just disappear down a sort of rabbit hole worrying about these things about, well, like, let's say about conspiracy theories or whatever. And, uh, it's like, this doesn't change anything fundamentally. You know, maybe the earth, look, Mark, maybe the earth's flat. Okay. I I don't know for sure. I don't know. I cannot say I know that. I don't believe it is. But does that actually change the nub, the crux of the issues that we're actually really discussing here? No, it doesn't. So I agree with you. There's this horrendous kind of like miasma of, uh, you know, nonsense and, and half-truth and fake news and everything else out there at the minute. And, and the internet is so great. It's been such a great development. I think that was inevitable as well. Most of it, it, it's great for what it facilitates, what it allows, and it's full of crap as well. Well, and every minute someone spends worrying about whether the Earth is flat or whether nuclear weapons are a hoax or whether climate change is caused by greenhouse gases or uh, 
chemtrails or a harp or whatever, every minute they spend looking at that, researching it, arguing about it, is a minute they aren't spending addressing our urgent problems. What I was saying earlier about uh, and my feeling that the kind of domination system will resist change even to the point of harming itself because it's so entrenched and from many people, institutions, organizations, whatever, whatever hierarchies involved in all, on all of this, they don't kind of really have anywhere else to go. They may be in this position of immense control, but their backs are against the wall. So it's kind of like, well, whatever, let's just go down in flames. As some of those processes maybe take place. I'm wondering, in terms of people being jolted out of the sort of trance we've been talking about, maybe some big shocks to the system might assist in doing that. One of which, for example, was 9-11. Let's forget about the circumstances around that and all the theories. Let's just say it was a huge world event. That certainly shook a lot of people. Some people, their consciousness, their worldview changed after that for better or worse. Some people went deeper into unconsciousness after that after that, and into denial. So but maybe more of these sort of events, uh, whether they're extreme weather events or they're wars or whatever it happens to be, might jolt enough people just to a great enough extent to make a difference along the lines you're talking about. You were talking about people earlier, you know, like waking up to this. But of course, every one of these big disruptive events is very destructive, negative in itself. So, you know, there's, certainly, there's a fine balance between shocks to the system and actual fatal damage to the system. Well, I agree. Uh, was, even back when I wrote my book in 2008, I said that I, I was afraid that it was going to take disasters to shock large enough people, large enough numbers of people uh, into, into action against the system. And they're coming. Uh, Kerala, the floods in Kerala, I've read that those were uh, caused by by some engineering that changed how the waters flowed. I'm not sure if that's true. But as the disasters begin to affect privileged people, not just third world people, not just poor people, then I, I do think that sadly has a potential to galvanize them into action to find out what's really behind the disasters and to take action against it. And the disasters are coming. They've barely begun. I mentioned earlier at the top of the hour this idea about um, when as hierarchies begin to develop began to develop in human societies and those at the top needed people in between them and those at the base of the pyramid so to speak in order to mediate the whole thing. One pressure point along the lines of what we've just been talking about that may begin to increasingly show up is that when you have ruling elites who deploy enforcers to keep everyone underneath them in line uh, you know in a, a corporate structure it would just be like you know CEO and then senior management and middle management right down to the janitors but somewhere in the middle, there are enforcers. And in, in our societies, when you and I walk out on streets, it's the police, uh, an extremist, it might be the army. But uh, we, you know, we can see this from some examples in history. At certain times of crisis, a point can come when, for enforcers, they feel it's no longer worth their while to stand their ground, oh, yes. you know, to stand their ground and to take the shit. At some point, they're like, you know, put down their weapons, uh, you know, switch off their computers, whatever it happens to be, and say, I'm not doing this. I, you know, I've got a family. I'm not doing this anymore. Howard Zinn, in his wonderful book, A People's History of the United States, wrote about the possibility of what he called a revolt of the guards, the middle people, you know, the, the lawyers, the, the policemen, the, the, the professors, the professionals turning against the system. I think that if that point gave the game a change, and it could always happen, it's happened in places before, as you just said. No, Zen wasn't. I think I just 
only discovered his book recently. Wasn't that the one that was somehow banned in the US or banned from reading college reading lists? Or I, I don't know, there was some enormous controversy around that book. There may have been school systems that banned it, but uh, I don't believe his, that the, the, the book itself was ever banned. He, it's a marvelous book, and there are a lot of spin-offs of it. Uh, and he was marvelous, very humble, and very sweet man who I had the privilege to, to meet a couple of times. Um, but he's right there. It's, it's, it's the middle ground that is the linchpin in the whole system. If that falls, if that, then the system breaks down because everything below it depends on that being in place. And it could happen any time. In a way, it's like a strike. You see, in my book, I say one thing that could definitely bring domination to a halt decisively is a worldwide general strike. Now, that's a dream. Now, such a thing has never happened. I think maybe the technological potential to organize it exists today. But just as, an, as a thought experiment, it's very clear that if virtually... Every place in the world, the majority of working people said no and brought the world to a halt, it would be in their power. Kind of like the reverse of the the strike of the men of the mind that Ayn Rand dramatized in the novel Atlas Shrugged, the strike of the people of the world against the rulers. But in, at a small scale, these revolts of the guard are exactly a kind of strike. If they happen, you have people refusing to play their role any longer and crippling the institutions that depended on them playing that role. Yes, and we were talking earlier, and the sort of that, you see, revolt of the guards is a really, really important concept. You were talking earlier in, in your comments about the, the you know, human sacrifice, that dimension of the system. Well, what currently happens, and this also echoes a little bit of what I was saying earlier about not paying your taxes and how that can escalate really quickly. What happens, is, of course, is that the system makes examples out of rebels by slamming them down hard. Mm-hmm. And, of course, and that still has the power to absolutely terrify the vast majority of other people in the same position. You know, you step out of line, maybe going forward, punishments for doing so will become increasingly draconian. And it's, it takes courage, you know. You've got to be have a great deal of conviction, courage, or just be absolutely desperate to step in where someone else has been cut down you know, and do the same thing, you know, put up the same resistance. Oh, yes, but then there, there is another opportunity for organization, an affiliation of professors standing down because they refuse to be part of an indoctrination system, uh, an affiliation of police officers, whatever. Not just a guard, but organizations of guards doing it makes a, a much more difficult target to attack brutally without repercussions. You see what I mean? That's why... The, the methods of, of subdividing, dividing and subdividing societies that you talked about earlier took place so that it was kind of everybody against everybody and, you know, nobody felt part of anything or connected to anyone else. And, you know, for example, you look at how unionization was taken down um, as industrialization scaled up. Now it's so unpopular or unheard of almost to be part of a union and uh, organizing along those lines is frowned upon. So ways of organizing and working together were made more difficult. The manifestations of that that we see in society today echo the ones, as you say, that, that formed and took shape in the very earliest stages of domination. Uh, it was just divide and conquer, I suppose. Exactly. Okay, well, um, in your book, and of course it comes through in the film, when we're looking for like alternatives to this, we've been discussing you know, where we are now, what needs to change, what will change, what we can change voluntarily, what will change whether we like it or not. 
managed change, destructive, maybe uncontrolled change, all these various things are coming our way. Things might look like out the other side um, is, you know, who can say at this point. But I wanted to say just a word about anarchism, um, because in recent political interviews that I've done, um, I've been talking to uh, some people on the right, I've talked to people on the left, and I've been unable to call myself anything really when it comes to conventional political ideologies. But I've said to people, look, okay, just so we can move forward in discussion, I'm essentially an anarchist. That's about the closest thing I can come to. But I don't even like saying that because it's much misunderstood. But it is something you talk about. So perhaps just give us your take. Anarchism is many things and has been many things in the little under 200 200 years that it's really been an explicit philosophy. My, my anarchism is different from many that you'll often find today. To me, uh, anarchism is more a negative concept about what should not be. The word comes from the Greek anarchos, meaning without rulers or no rulers. Um, the film doesn't mention anarchism until the last 10 minutes. Uh, to me, anarchism is not a plan for an ideal society because no one knows how it would really work. To me, anarchism is an ideal. It's a standard of human relations that communities don't need subjugating institutions and they're best organized cooperatively by relations among equals rather than between rulers and subjects and superiors and subordinates. Um, it's an ideal that we can judge various institutions by. The more institutions embody authoritarianism, domination, and so forth, the more we should try to reform them. The more a community operates without those things, the closer it is to the ideal. But to me, anarchism is also heuristic, a very valuable heuristic idea, meaning one that can guide people to learn or make discoveries. Um, rather than as a blueprint for society, anarchism to me takes off from debunking the traditional political question, who should rule and how? This is a loaded question. It's like asking who should beat children and how? Does anyone have to rule? Are, are communities really impossible without ruling elites and subjects? And the question also diverts attention with what I said earlier was the fundamental purpose of any community, providing its members life support and well-being. Can a community under domination possibly, optimally, provide its members life support and well-being. So just to open the door to those questions, are those, in, are those ruling institutions necessary, and what would really be the best way, or even a, a better way, to organize communities than under ruling authorities, that's the value of anarchism. It opens up new possibilities, and it throws the present system in a much broader perspective instead of capitalism, communism, socialism, fascism, right-wing, left-wing left uh, debates like that, it puts that entire system in a, in a perspective where maybe that is just one side of a whole new range of possibilities for how human communities can be organized and for what human life could be. So an ideal and a heuristic concept. One of my favorite philosophers, Karl Popper, I, he, his politics are not my favorite, but he was a great epistemologist. Uh, in a very different context, he said, I don't need to be able to define good meat to know meat gone bad. My theory tries to show 
that there are good reasons to think that political power inevitably causes mass human suffering and destruction of the habitat. That's plenty good reason to decide that those institutions are intolerable and must be abolished. Whether we can do without them, how we can abolish them, and what we might have instead, I'd much rather leave for other people to find out. Because I, I've done... I've done pretty much all the thinking a man of my age can do in his life, probably, in just coming up with that theory. So I think it opens new doors. And my film, I hope, Justin's in my film, may be a way of, of raising new questions for people and opening new avenues of thought. I sure don't want to convince anybody that my theory is right, but I know it's worth thinking about for all those reasons I just said. Well, Mark, uh, just a closing thought from me. When I first read your book and then saw the, the film versions and sort of reflected on those, what resonated with me instantly was something that I felt from a very, very young age. And it was actually from when I was first dragged to school and I went to preschool when I was three. I don't think, according to my mother, I almost made no sound until that age, until I screamed my head off <laughs> when I was taken to school for the first time. And I, I can still remember that day. And it's strange because I don't not necessarily remember much about being four, but that particular day when I was three. And I later came to characterize this in my own words as whether it was school or taxes or work or having in this country saying, oh, well, it's election time, conservative labor. Uh, it wasn't so much that I said none of these things should exist. But what I wanted to know was, why do I have to be involved? And my question was, where did I sign up for this? I've got, a, <laughs> I've got a national insurance number, um, apparently, whether I like it or not. It's not currently tattooed on my body, but what, I don't want a national insurance number. Thank you. I didn't agree to it. I personally did not agree to this. So I came into a system. I was born into a system with all of this control and all of these contraptions and all this Byzantine and Baroque control paraphernalia that I don't want anything to do with. But if I say thanks but no thanks, that's not an option. Because as you pointed out earlier on, where can I go? What can I do to be completely free of this? It's like there's no... I can't do it. It's like crabs in a bucket. If I try and crawl out of the bucket, then another crab will drag me back in because, well, we can't have crabs crawling out of the bucket because if other crabs see this, they'll realize there's something other than the bucket. That's what makes it political power. Exactly. You're forced to make choices that you wouldn't otherwise have made. Exactly. And my ho this is why I so resent what day-to-day -day personal admin of like bills. And I understand, look, if I, if I get something, I'm happy to pay for it. You know, if I understand that if I buy electricity, it's, yeah, I'm buying it. That's fine. If I buy gas, that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. I understand. I'm not expecting to live free. As a lot of people think about anarchism means it's a lot of people who want to do nothing and just somehow, you know, live off the backs of others. No, that's something completely different. But but I want to make that choice freely interacting with others and even other groups of people or companies, institutions, whatever. If it's if it's free flowing and organic and voluntary, then I'm happy to take part or not take part. But as I said before, what I always wanted to know was where did I sign up for this? And I don't know in terms of the future whether, uh, you know, because we have some proto-anarchist things like Burning Man, for example. That's held up as an example of that potentially in action. So I don't know what the future will look like in those terms, how, whether we can truly extricate ourselves from from control and domination and have that voluntary interaction on the sort of on a global basis considering how many people currently live on the planet but i'd like to think so because i i don't think that the evolutionary future that i spoke about earlier that inexorable forward drive that we have i don't think it can 
continue, you know, under this current rubric, this current yoke. I think we have to somehow or other voluntarily or forcefully, peacefully, destructively, we have to move beyond it. What we have right now cannot stand. No, no way it can. In a way, it's as simple as communities taking control of their own affairs. Every every community has institutions. It, anarchism can't mean everybody just does what they want. It means communities get together to decide how they're going to provide their own life support and how they're going to organize their affairs. Uh, it isn't whether there will be any institutions. It's whether the institutions will be under everybody's control or under the control of some ruling figures. Uh, it, I think it could be at a at a at a world scale if community building started the process. And of course, political power is in the way of that community building. So I don't know how you get that obstacle out of the way, but I think it's possible in principle. Okay, well, Mark, today we've been talking about yeah your new new film, Engines of Domination: Political Power and the Human Emergency. This is sort of a, a reimagining of uh, the earlier film which is based on your book of the same name so all of that material is out there and still available people will find links to all of that on this interview page before we sign off for today is there anything else you'd like to say to listeners maybe about uh, the Provo project that you mentioned earlier just anything else that you might have coming up in future yeah let me just mention that briefly uh justin jesuski and i are in mid-production of a full-length documentary about the marvelous anarchist movement in Holland called Provo. It lasted two years, but it had a profound effect on Dutch politics. And as far as we know, it's a completely unique thing. It also It's also affected the student movements in Paris and Prague. Uh, and as far as we know, no one's ever made a full-length film that really tells the full history accurately, or at least one in English. I think there are none. So we're going to return to work on that after we both recovered from the intense work of finishing our new film, uh, The Director's Cut of Interest of Domination. But I hope, our hope with that film is to show how human creativity can have amazing consequences when applied to political action and to kind of make, make an anthem to creativity and surrealism and, and the crazy kinds of unique alchemies that can galvanize very effective political action into existence that no one could have foreseen, that that are probably lurking throughout the world, all, all over the place where if the right ingredients came together, things as remarkable as Provo could happen. So that's our hope with the film, and it is an amazing story about totally bizarre, amazing, and inspired people doing something unpredictable uh, that really had a profound effect. As I said, it's, it's much better known in Europe than in the United States, partly because of the language barrier. But I even remember the one time Provo made international news uh, at the at the royal wedding of the Dutch crown princess Beatrice in 1956. Provo disrupted the wedding by setting off huge white smoke bombs that were televised worldwide. And I even remember seeing that on the CBS Evening News. I fear today that would <laughs> deemed terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well the times have changed. And there's no way anything like Provo could be repeated, but as an inspiration for for activists and artists and thinkers and workers, for a broad spectrum of people to possibly merge their, their talents in, in some kind of magical happening, I think the lesson is immortal. Yes, well, we'll see what we'll see and time will tell, I suppose. Mark, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. No, it's been a pleasure, Greg. Thank you very much for talking with me.